Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, advertising, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. And uh, first-time guest, AJ Katz, a staff writer covering the TV industry. Uh, AJ, welcome aboard. Thank you for having me, David. How long have you been at Adweek now? About a year? A little over a year, yeah. I came uh, mid-March of 2016. All right. Well, sorry it's taken us so long to get you on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, this Better late be, than never. Yeah, this will be a perfect one for you. And returning staff writer, Sammy Main, who covers the digital media industry. Sammy, welcome back. Hello. Hi, everybody. All right, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, in the news, we've got uh, this this week. It feels like every week there is a site or a personality that everyone's pulling ads from. This week it is Bill O'Reilly after a big New York Times investigation came to light about sexual harassment. So we'll talk about which advertisers are pulling out of his show and why. Uh, we're also going to look at some news on uh, kind of related uh, how there has been a huge boom in cable news viewership uh, ever since the political season really got under way. And uh, we're also going to round up the best of the April Fool's uh, pranks from the brand marketing industry uh, this year. And Tim's going to walk us through ads worth watching. And then we're going to have a great big conversation about our cover story this week, which is about political power players, uh, by which we mean the kind of new generation of pundits and media personalities who have really, once again, risen to the limelight, uh, largely due to the election. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. But first, the news. Well, as I mentioned, on Sunday, the New York Times had a a pretty big expose on their cover about Bill O'Reilly, host of the O'Reilly Factor on Fox News, uh, basically saying that he has had, I I believe, five uh, major cases of sexual harassment allegations against him that have been settled by Fox News. They've paid out a total of about $13 million for these settlements. And uh, these only a few of these have been brought to light. Um, AJ, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I believe I think only two of these cases were really known to the public before this story, correct? I think that's correct, yes. 
So the uh, reading in just a quick paragraph from the story here, uh, they, they said that there seems to be a pattern in the allegations against uh, Bill O'Reilly. It says the reporting suggests a pattern. As an influential figure in the newsroom, Mr. O'Reilly would create a bond with some women by offering advice and promising to help them professionally. He then would pursue sexual relationships with them, causing some to fear that if they rebuffed him, their careers would stall. It is a uh, pretty hard-hitting uh, article, especially coming from something you know someone as reputable as the New York Times. They obviously spent a lot of time on this story, and it is uh, pretty egregious. Uh, the allegations made against him are quite quite terrible. I definitely recommend you look it up and read the story yourself uh, for the specifics. Uh, some of it we couldn't even have in a WorkSafe podcast. Uh, so mm. this is some pretty pretty terrible things he's accused of doing, and obviously Fox is trying to uh, settle these as quickly and quietly as possible. Well, since this came to light, uh, Mercedes, BMW, and Hyundai, as of the time of this recording, have been the biggest advertisers to pull out of the O'Reilly factor. They've dropped their ads. And uh, we looked at on TV Newser, which uh, AJ is one of the writers for our our TV news industry blog. Uh, We kind of addressed the question of why car companies? You know, at this point, we've got BMW, Hyundai, Mercedes. And, uh, you know, the insiders we talked to have basically told us that when you're facing a boycott, it's one thing if you're a consumer brand with kind of a small purchase threshold. But these car companies, you know, a boycott can can mean forty, a hundred thousand dollars a pop, depending on what kind of car you're buying. And uh, so high stakes for that. Uh, I I guess, AJ, while we've got you, I've got a few questions on this. Namely, what do you in the last few days, what have you seen in the sense of the discussion around O'Reilly, around his longevity? Is this something that's going to hurt his career or do you think Fox will just continue kind of defend him no matter what? Fox is going to continue. I mean, Bill O'Reilly is is the top cable news personality um, of all time, frankly. I mean, he's he's been there ever since the beginning. Um, He's coming off the most watched quarter in cable news history. Um, You know, he's had these accusations thrown in before. He's managed to sidestep them and keep going. He has an unbelievably loyal, dedicated audience base, um, prominently older and male. Um, I, you know, I don't see them leaving him anytime soon. I'm sure there are a lot of his viewers who don't condone the behavior, but, um, you know, the audience for the most part, loves him. Um, I think from a PR standpoint, it's worse for the network than it is for Bill. Um, I think Bill's going to stick around for as ever long as he wants. <laughs> and it feels like a lot of the previous accusations against uh, Fox News, against Roger Ailes, they came about through this kind of um, wave of allegations coming forward, uh, you know, kind of building not just one person, but, you know, showing that this was a pattern. Right. Uh, and and that feels like we're we're where we are here, but you 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 don't think that it's going to go down the same way for Bill O'Reilly? I think you know. I mean, let's see. He's in his late sixties. I think you know there have been reports that he's re-upped. So I you know I don't see them letting him go anytime soon. That being said, I read something maybe about an hour or so ago that the uh, National Organization of Women um, has now gotten in, into the fray and they want him to be fired. So um, that throws sort of a curveball into everything. But I still maintain that, you know, his audience is not going to leave him. He is the heart and soul of that network. He, you know, pulls millions and millions of viewers every night. He has generally the most watched show on cable in terms of total audience. So um, it would be very, very tough for them to let him go. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Sammy, do you think this is going to, you know, mostly just resonate with people who already disliked O'Reilly? Or do you think that it could have an impact on people who already were, you know, who were actual fans of his 
I think that's hard to say. I think there were multiple times during this campaign season that we thought, you know, things that had come out about now President Trump, we thought that that would derail his entire campaign, <laughs> especially some of the, the allegations and, you know, the hot mic recordings of, of what he said about women, let alone, you know, allegations or proof of sexual misconduct. So I, I don't know that this will affect fans of Bill O'Reilly. Um, there is a perspective I saw earlier that I don't know I uh, agree with, um, saying that it, if Fox News, you know, did let him go, that it would be um, pointing toward a larger stance of Fox News not supporting their talent or their stars or their employees. And I think that shouldn't <laughs> come at the cost of safety and reputations and, you know, general mental health of, of employees of a broadcaster. So I, I don't n anticipate it affecting his career at all. I feel like if anything, it's kind of um, sadly unsurprising when news like this comes out. Um, as more and more advertisers kind of take a look at things, we'll see if that affects um you know, kind of how the the company itself treats uh, O'Reilly, but it, it might tone him down a, a little bit. But, you know, as we've seen with him, he kind of gets strength from criticism. So I don't think it'll slow him down that much. Well, and it, it feels like, uh, you know, w when you look at something like Breitbart, which obviously has had a, a big advertiser backlash uh, against it, um, but they are, you know, kind of a small enough, nimble enough operation. They can keep going. They can have a bunch of niche advertisers. It feels like Fox News does not want to become the Breitbart of broadcast news uh, because, you know, it, there is there are so many factions within the, the Republican conservative movement right now. And it does feel like almost program by program, Fox News is trying to cater to as many as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, AJ, I don't, I don't know. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that they're going to while I agree they will probably not be getting rid of Bill O'Reilly anytime soon, it, it does feel like they want to try to maintain as much of a kind of moderate Republican stance with a few programs that appeal to the more right wing set. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd, for instance, I think it was last Saturday's edition of uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro, which is a Saturday night primetime program. Um, one of the uh, lower thirds when she was speaking actually had the word opinion below her. So I think, you know, they're making more of an effort to sort of separate the news from the opinion, you know, that they've they've claimed over the years that they're fair and balanced and you know you can take that with a grain of salt if you will but um you know i really do think that they're trying to make more of an effort to separate the news from the opinion part of their programming um you know i mean th th they do have folks like shep smith who has a 3 p.m hour who is known as you know to the larger public as being more fair and balanced more as a traditional you know newsman and then you have Chris Wallace on Sunday mornings with Fox News Sunday and you have you know you, you do have anchors over there that do sort of have a traditional news journalist background but um, you know the folks who really bring in the most money for them are their opinion you know people so you have Fox and Friends in the morning and then you have their late afternoon slate starting with Neil Cavuto up through prime time with Sean Hannity at 10 p.m. Um, so you know it's it, for them forever it's been trying to balance that news with the opinion. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if this is going to stop that, um, but, you know, it, it will be interesting to see what happens. 
Well, as AJ mentioned a minute ago, we are uh, in kind of a golden age right now for uh, cable news viewership. Uh, We ran a story uh, very recently uh, from Jason Lynch, our TV writer, recapping uh, Nielsen's reporting on total viewership for news uh, of all types uh, last year. So across 2016 and comparing that to 2015. Uh, and they found some pretty fascinating stats. So essentially, uh, the news consumers, people who regularly watch news, uh, they were watching 85 minutes more uh, a week of, of news uh, than they were the year before. So that went from, uh, I believe, about five, uh, five hours almost even to six hours and 28 minutes. So a pretty substantial increase. Uh, and uh, and that's amid a, a general decline in live view live TV viewing or linear TV or whatever you feel like watching like tuning into TV that's that seems to be dropping about uh, four minutes uh, four minutes a day uh, each year uh, so that's sorry it's kind of a hard number to explain but essentially uh, people are watching four minutes and tw- um, four hours and 23 minutes of, of TV uh, each day uh, in 2016 that was down about four minutes uh, so they were watching four minutes more each day uh, the previous year and four minutes more the year before that so it is just kind of gradual decline but cable news has been the big exception um you know aj i guess my question for you is how you know the election obviously drove a lot of that interest last year if not the vast majority of it but do you see that uh that wind continuing to kind of uh, keep pushing the sales of, of cable news I do. I mean, look, you know, people want news that supports their own opinions these days, Um, you know, and with cable news, obviously, there is Fox News on the right, MSNBC on the far left, and they're killing it in the ratings right now. And, um, you know, a lot of it is conflict driven. Um, You know, there's drama involved. Everyone, you know, everyone wants to see some sort of drama when they put on the television, whether it's a sporting event whether it's, you know, their favorite show on, you know, on, on the weeknights or on Netflix that they tune into. And now it's, you know, now it's coming with cable news and there's just a lot of drama involved. And the networks are doing a pretty effective job, frankly, of, of pushing the dramatic factor um, and the drama um, of everything. And, you know, in Trump and the Trump administration, you know, look, it's interesting not to go on too far of a tangent, but um, when I spoke with Tucker Carlson recently, um, he said that Trump considers himself a you know a player in the media industry he considers himself one of them he doesn't you know he's a tv guy um and he has uh, an understanding of television he was a producer he was obviously a host um you know and he knows how to jack up the drama and i think um you know as long as he keeps saying provocative things and you know and the networks sort of follow his lead and they cover it like he wants the news to be covered. I think ratings are going to keep going up. Um, and yeah. Do you think we'll see another, uh, a new cable news network? It's been a while since we've seen one come around. Oh, that's a good question. Um, not right now. I, you know, I think there was um, a cable uh, cable company, uh, Altice, which is um, a Swiss-based company that uh, launched an international news network that I think is on a couple different providers, but I, I, I don't know if, if it's hit the States quite yet. Um, but um, in terms of a domestic news, I, I don't see it right now. I don't know if there's enough room in the landscape, but you know, the appetite, the appetite is there. So I, you never really know. 
Well, it, it certainly didn't work out too well for Al Jazeera America. Uh, that is up, true. An yes. Interesting uh, <laughs> experiment that did not that did not pan out in the long run. Uh, well, thank right. you so much, AJ, for your perspective on those. Uh, let's move on to slightly more uplifting news. Uh, well, or at least positive news. We had a um, April Fools came and went again uh, this year. April Fools was on a Saturday, which kind of made things a little uh, difficult for brands and pranksters in general because you know you kind of lost a lot of your audience on Friday. Uh, that said, we did our annual roundup of Rebecca Colors, uh, one of our Writers uh, did a yeoman's work piecing together as many of the decent uh, brand uh, pranks and stunts uh, as she could. And we had quite a massive one. I recommend you look up April Fool's Day 2017 uh, ad week and you can find that uh, to recap. But uh, let's talk about some of our favorites. Uh, Sammy, did, were there any that jumped out at you? There was one that I saw that I thought was pretty cute, kind of playing on... Um all of our dwindling attention spans. Um, it was something from Hulu that I really liked. It was just called, they're announcing who, just H-U. And they would just, uh, they edited together clips of episodes of shows into like two minutes because that's all we have time to <laughs> watch these days. So it was just kind of a fun poke at everybody of like, yeah, sit down and watch 20 minutes worth of an episode. But if you can't, here's two minutes and it'll tell you everything you need to know. I thought that was pretty cute and fairly benign. I think we all <laughs> can get a little bogged down and uh, grisly on Twitter when we see brands try to do their thing on April Fool's Day. They really try to shoehorn it in there. But I appreciated the the kind of playfulness that Hulu brought this year. I, I think my favorite was the Chicago Cubs tweeting an entire fake game. that's a long con i like that yeah it was really well i mean and uh, and of course the cubs were winning like 21 to (laughs) 0 at the end of the game (laughs) but it was just funny watching because i was watching it in real time as they were posting the stuff and people are just responding like this is cruel but i love it (laughs) keep going and one guy was like i literally live in wrigleyville and i had to go outside (laughs) and see if this (laughs) one's real uh tim uh what what uh, which ones were some of your favorites well, you know, uh, Google always does pretty fun stuff. I mean, April Fool's Day is really a day for, for brands to really geek out, you know, and no one geeks out better than Google, typically. So um, they did, you know, they did a, a parody of Google Home, and it was uh, Google Gnome, which is uh, for your smart yard. And I thought that was pretty clever. I've, actually, maybe we could just play a brief clip of that because the, the writing on this uh, parody spot was pretty funny, too. Let's listen to a clip of it here. From the people that brought you Google Home comes the next evolution of the smart home. And it's just outside your window. Meet Google Gnome. Hi, how can I help? Okay, Gnome, what's the weather like outside? The weather outside is sunny and 76 degrees. He's right. Okay, Gnome, turn on the hose I'm holding. Sure. So, yeah, that was fun. Amazon did something very similar. You know, obviously, um, smart assistant, uh, home assistants are are really popular right now. So they pretended to make an Alexa for your pet. And so that kind of, you know, the the, the ad was done in the style of of, uh, Echo ads. Uh, and it had like the dog barking at the at the at the device and being able to order stuff on Amazon and so on things like that. So that was a pretty cool. I mean, a lot of April Fool stuff basically invents fake products and has animals use them. So that was a, yeah, that was definitely uh, Amazon hitting the sweet spot there. Um, I also liked uh, the thing that Honda did, which was uh, they, they pretended to make uh, a horn for their vehicles that um, had a range of horn sounds corresponding to various emoji faces. 
So like happy or angry. Uh, so that was pretty funny. And then SodaStream did one. Um, they went all out uh, and got Paris Hilton involved. Um, SodaStream is that home soda water machine uh, that you can buy. And, and one of its big selling points has always been that it's good for the environment. You know, you, you don't have to buy any more plastic bottles. So this kind of played off that, and Paris Hilton pretended to introduce something called the Nano Drop, which was a single drop of water that's 5,000 times more hydrating than regular water, and it comes in this tiny, tiny bottle. And isn't it a great way to help the environment buying these tiny bottles instead of the big ones? And then, of course, halfway <laughs> through the video, um, it's revealed to be a hoax and so on. And, you know, we haven't heard from Paris Hilton in a while. I thought she did a pretty fun fun uh, <laughs> job in this ad. Well, those of us who follow her on Snapchat hear from her all the time. <laughs> she ah. mostly just plays with her dogs, and that's about it. <laughs> I see. Um, so, yeah, maybe we could listen to a brief clip of Paris, too, since um, she sort of came out of the woodwork for this one. Plastic bottles are poisoning our planet. And that's why I've decided to invent a miracle that will cure the world. Follow me. Welcome to the Paris Hilton Institute for Plastic Pollution Solutions, or FIPS. Hi, Phil. Cute shoes. Here at FIPS, along with some really smart scientist colleagues of mine, we came up with a product that will reinvent drinking forever. Nanodrop, a cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, condensed form of sparkling water. So yeah, I mean, I thought maybe there was a larger point about April Fool's jokes this year. There seemed to be, I mean, a lot of people uh, hate them in general, but this year I, there seemed to be quite a bit more opposition to them or at least resistance to them, um, maybe because, you know, the rise of actual fake news. Um, gags like this maybe start to feel a little bit out of step with, with the times. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when they're done well, they're still fun. You know, what the, the Hulu one that Sammy mentioned and some of these others, um, if, if they're clever and they are actually funny, I guess they're worth your time. Um, but, but fake news isn't the, uh, the unbridled uh, joy fest that it once was. <laughs> you know, what makes me sad is that some of the original, the, the old school best April Fool's pranks were, were done by news media. And, and now I don't think they would touch that with like a 10 foot pole. Like, you know, NPR did my all time favorite. Uh, and I know the BBC has a long track record, but but my favorite was the NPR one where um, it was because, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're listening to like NPR and, and it doesn't quite occur to your brain <laughs> that, that it's April Fool's. And they had a piece about these uh, Vermont uh, syrup farmers who uh, th there was a shortage of, of syrup farmers, I think, that, that year. And so the trees were starting to swell and explode from <laughs> excess nice. from an excess of syrup. And it yeah, was I would believe that <laughs> that early in the morning. And I just love the idea that, like, before humans came along, trees just randomly exploded. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Sports Illustrated had a good one where they profiled a guy that supposedly could pitch 112 miles an hour or 120 miles an hour or something. And the whole story was was written up in the magazine. And I think if you took the first letter of every paragraph, uh, it spelled out, like, Happy April Fool's Day, et cetera. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of, kind yeah. of fun. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right that the uh, the the appetite for this amid, you know, the, uh, a world where politics is almost indistinguishable from the onion, you know, uh, that that and fake news being such a a kind of serious problem, it, it did take some of the fun out of it. And I think some of the best ones really were more you you just kind of chuckle and nod and then move on. And I noticed so many brands were even straight up just putting a, like hashtag April Fools in their in their tweet, like they're not even you know, gonna give you a moment. There was one other one I wanted to mention, which was uh, IKEA over in Singapore. Um, 
for some reason, I think it's because BBH uh, Asia Pacific is such a, a fun agency. They they handle IKEA Singapore's advertising, but um, they've had great ads over the years, and they did a pretty fun gag where they pretended that um, they were they were ter- changing over their um, in-store playground for kids into a press playground. And uh, they were getting rid of all the stuff to play on, and they were just going to give kids tablets because um, they prefer video games to physical activity. And they just put a bunch of photos of kids looking at tablets on their Facebook page. <laughs> it was just, it was like such a great troll because um, I think they did it a day or two before, um, probably just to hit the weekday versus you know trying to actually troll them by getting by you know having the timing be off but uh the parental reactions on facebook to this announcement were awesome all right well we are just barely beginning our ridiculousness uh because we've got a great selection uh, this week of the best commercials of the week and we like to call it ads worth watching tim uh we've got some (laughs) like a range of pretty great stuff this week uh what do you want to start us off with yeah, well, um, I guess we can start off with Carl's Jr., um, which, so this is, uh, it's become the latest brand kind of in the tradition of Axe and some others to try to really turn itself around and, and swear off its uh, sexist, uh, smutty past and try to focus its advertising on food and less on uh, scantily clad supermodels, uh, which of course uh, have dominated Carl's Jr. advertising for, for many years now. So last week they introduced uh, this new direction with a three-minute video from 72 and Sunny that, that fabricated this whole backstory about um, why Carl's Jr. has been running sexist ads in the first place. So the video showed this fictional uh, founder of the company, a guy named Carl Hardy Sr., who supposedly built the company around food and then left his son Carl Jr. in charge, who was the guy who supposedly put all the supermodels in the ads so the video opens and Carl Sr. kind of comes back and, and is horrified to see what's happened to his company. And he's literally walking around the restaurant's headquarters, kind of ripping down the, the, the ads for the supermodels. And, and he, he tells everyone he's going to focus on the food again. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a three-minute video. It was pretty well done. Um, the funny thing to me was that 72 and Sunny, which did this video, also did all those earlier campaigns. So, you know, they're sort of in this weird position of having to publicly denounce their earlier work, um, which isn't something you see every day. kind of adds this meta aspect to the whole thing. Um, you know, I think it's great that they're moving in this in this new direction. Obviously, they feel a little bit out of step with the times. Um, but it's funny. It just, you know, having the same agency do the new work just shows you how, I guess, morally flexible they are. <laughs> you know, these <laughs> these advertisers and their agencies, it's really just whatever's good for business will will do. Um but uh, pretty well done, I thought. Well, let's uh, let's listen to some of uh, Carl uh, Carl Hardy Sr. arriving to uh, dismantle his son's uh, operation here. Well, we did things our own way. We brought your food straight to your table. I'm sorry, lady. Brought all natural beef to the burger. I like this one, Daddy. And brought bacon to damn near everything. See, this is what I've been talking about. Food, not booze. Shut up, Jimmy. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I loved the video. that I watched it several times. Um, I, 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 to your point, Tim, I enjoy the irony of that these are the exact same people uh, who were creating all these ads, and they are now, but you know, kind of uh, disavowing them. But the, the thing that bothered me, and this actually a Facebook commenter on our page was the first one to point this out, and I, and I was like, oh, yeah, how did this not really occur to me? Is that you've got basically these aging Gen X marketers, uh, pe- you know, people in their 40s, 50s, uh, who made these ads, 
And then they create a fictional millennial to blame it all on. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimate scapegoat (laughs) of like, hey, you know, we created this, but hurry, let's make it. And then someone was saying, but isn't it probably because of millennials that they're canceling this entire campaign? You know, it's because like younger (laughs) people don't really want that stuff. I don't know. Sammy, what did what did you make of all this? Gross. I don't know. I'm glad that they're (laughs) moving past it. And if they have to blame somebody, that's fine. It is kind of a fun character to be like, yeah, this weird bro who, if we're following like chronology, was very young if he started designing (laughs) those ads and taking over the company. Yeah. So like a super gross seven-year-old took over (laughs) Carl's Jr. (laughs) His dad just left him. Just abandon him for uh, I don't know Rumspringa I don't know so it's kind of it's <laughs> if they need the character to blame that's fine because it it is kind of in line with you know the stereotypical college bro dad's away so let's party and uh, whatever so it's it's nice for me that they're kind of acknowledging like yeah that was weird <laughs> we did for many extended periods of time uh, and maybe from now on we we can just focus you know on on the food instead of the babes behind the burgers it is it, it is a, uh, a trend though I mean there was a, a Brazilian uh, beer company recently that took all of their old ads and had um, women illustrators mm-hmm. Uh, kind of make new versions of these very sexist old ads. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so the last few years has seen tons of this stuff, and it's it's kind of yeah, interesting to see how each brand approaches the, it differently. Power of the female gaze, kind of the the different takes, different directors and creatives can kind of have on the. <laughs> they're still just trying to sell burgers and beer. It's not you know <laughs> right. doesn't have to be this salacious you know whole industry. Yeah, and there were a few comments uh, both at Adweek and, and in the viewership of people kind of hoping for that Paris Hilton cameo, but I guess she was off, you know, recording April Fool's <laughs> videos. Uh, but you know, I feel like she started it all. Uh, so, yeah, a, uh, definitely check out our write-up on that. Uh, just look for Carl Hardy Sr. <laughs> on Google on Adweek. And, uh, yeah, check out the write-up and, and the spots if you haven't seen them yet. Tim, um, what else do you have this week? Well, we're, we're going to stay with the sort of theme of uncomfortableness for the second one. Um, so this is a strange PSA campaign down in the Mexico City subway uh, about sexual harassment. Um, so we've seen, obviously, lots of PSAs about this topic over the years, but this one was certainly memorable. So they took what they did was they took uh, one of the subway car's seats and they molded the plastic to look like the lower half of a man's body, uh, including his private parts. And the sign said the seat was for men only. And so they, they took a video. Um, I think it was actors, honestly, that were in this video. But it showed these guys sitting down on this, you know, molded plastic, uh, ver- like this facsimile of a man and immediately getting back up. You know, obviously, for a variety of reasons, they were not comfortable sitting there. And the visuals were, were very strange. And then on the floor next to the seat, um, a sign said, uh, it's annoying to travel this way, but not compared to the sexual violence women suffer in their daily commutes. So I don't know. I thought this was really, I mean, conceptually kind of strange and, you know, probably used maybe homophobia a little too prominently in getting its message across. But certainly, you know, something, you know, for this category, um, it was it was really different. And, and, and people seemed to share it a lot and, and were intrigued by it. It was it was a campaign by uh, UN Women, by the way, and the, uh, in partnership with the Mexico City government. So, you know, very official campaign and, and just not something I could see running in the United States. Um but kind of a, a unique approach to this topic. Well, the, the metaphor took me 
I, I mean, it's not that it took me a minute. I mean, it's a very direct metaphor, but it's not like a perfect metaphor. And and at first that bothered me. And then after it doesn't really anymore. Like they're they're not literally saying that, like, you know, women have to sit on, you know, dudes naked laps. But they're saying, you know, I do love that they're focusing. They're creating such a visceral image for the discomfort of that, uh, of like, you know, this really uncomfortable, inappropriate sexual situation in a public place. Does that make sense? I mean, Sammy, do you feel like it, it was a a valid metaphor or they at least conveyed the right image? Absolutely. And, you know, it's something that I wish wasn't like a limited run because it's something that doesn't go away for women. It's something that should be like on sidewalks and every public space where women have to be, where we kind of are constantly uh, uncomfortable. Uh, There's like not always a safe space for women. So I think it kind of called attention to like this very mundane everyday. Yes, we all commute, but kind of the, the underlying, you know, fear if you're aware enough is like, oh, who here on this train is going to be extra creepy this morning or, you know, this evening. It's a it's a constant thing. And so while, yeah, the homophobia is not great but it was kind of a message for kind of what what women have to constantly put up with and deal with and isn't always called out even by the women themselves so it's something that I wish would kind of take hold here and something people would um, be more mindful of or more aware of and kind of you know help people when they do see it out and about um, so that it doesn't uh, have to come to sitting on a plastic penis on a subway seat for people to understand that women feel uncomfortable every single day of their lives. It would be nice if people would just, you know, be humans and understand that from the get-go. The You know, what it reminded me of, too, is that, uh, you know, every once in a while you hear about in Japan that they have, you know, women-only cars on public transit uh, you know, because they've had so, so many issues with guys being creepy or, you know, filming upskirt shots and things like that. And I get it. And that's cool that they offer that. But on the other hand, it's it's kind of admitting defeat. Right. Like it's 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 this isn't the equivalent yeah. of a quiet car on the train where you're no, basically that doesn't fix the problem. <laughs> the problem is like a systemic from childhood, you know, notion that boys will be boys and then nobody says anything. So while that sounds like heaven and all female cars sounds <laughs> amazing and nice and it will smell great all the time. Uh, so that sounds really good in concept, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily fix the ad, the actual problem. Uh, Tim, tell us about uh, the third ad worth watching this week. Yeah, so the last thing I want to mention this week uh, was this website that a freelance copywriter over in England named Joe Coleman uh, made for himself as a way to drum up freelance business. And so it's called getcoleman.com, and it's just a really simple, clever concept. You go to the site, and there's a slider at the bottom that you can move around, and on the left, it says less hard sell. And on the right, it says more hard sell. So as you move the slider around, the copy changes to make you know either a softer sell for Joe uh, or a harder sell for Joe and how great he is and why he'd be good working for your agency. So when you arrive on the site, you get this sort of middle of the road pitch because the slider is right in the middle and just says, hello, I'm Joe Coleman. I'm a freelance copywriter. I come up with words and concepts that help you win pitches and pick up awards. I've been in the business for over 15 years and can tackle everything from ad campaigns to brand guidelines. I adapt my style to suit every job and work with some of the best advertising and design agencies around. So pretty straightforward. So then if you move the slider to the left, the copy kind of gets more and more pared back and actually kind of less enthusiastic about Joe, honestly. And if you go all the way to the left, it says something like, yeah, I'm a freelance copywriter. What of it? It's like all the way on the left. And then if you move it to the right, um, the copy gets more and more intense. 
and he starts to name the different awards that he's gotten and the, the different agencies he's worked for. And eventually, if you if you scooch it all the way over, um, these cats appear and, <laughs> and explosions, and it becomes this sort of crazy, amusing, sort of Old Spice-ish, um, very hard sell for Joe. So I thought it was pretty delightful. Um, I spoke to Joe about it and how he came up with it. Uh, a design agency called Music actually helped him with it, so they brainstormed ideas together. Music is actually a client of his, so... I think they bartered some some kind of arrangement there. Um, so yeah, over at um, AdFreak, uh, we have a Q and A with Joe, and uh, check the site out. If it's uh, he, it's been crashing a little bit, so if it's down when you when you actually check it out, don't be surprised because it's been getting more traffic than he expected because um, of the create, creativity behind it. But it's getcoleman.com, um, C O L E M A N. And I feel like there have been several things we've written about, kind of creative, uh, self-promotional things or just, uh, you know, work that people looking for employment have done. Uh, and e- even if it's just work they've created, I feel like we've heard stories of people, of them getting job offers and things from uh, our, our coverage of it. Uh, you know, I feel like this is the first one I've seen where it's literally crashing his own self-promotional site <laughs> because of the popularity. So good luck to him, and uh, we will keep an eye out and maybe give an update uh, when we hear where he ends up. All right, well, we are going to move into our big discussion of the week, which is about political power players, our cover story of the week. So let's get to it. All right, so uh, like I said, if you look up on Google, you can find our uh, Adweek political power players, uh, say our cover story this week. And uh, I'll just, I'm not going to list off everyone. I believe there's 15 in total, but some of the more notable names that people might recognize. Uh, We've got CNN's Jim Acosta and Van Jones, uh, Breitbart's political editor Matthew Boyle, uh, Fox News' Tucker Carlson, and his kind of uh, uh, antithesis, uh, Teen Vogue's Lauren Duca. Uh, And uh, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, who, of course, has been around for a while, but really has, um, you know, kind of risen to prominence as a voice of the resistance. And uh, American Urban Radio Network's April Ryan, who, you know, a year ago would not have been a household name, but has since uh, become kind of a, a... you know, part of the news itself, which I think is to me one of the most fascinating things is going through this list. Almost every single person in here has been at the center of news simply by covering or expressing opinions on the news. Uh, I mean, AJ, do you think that's kind of a, a fair assessment that they've gone beyond just writing about news and actually being in it? It's a very fair assessment. And, you know, if you ask a lot of these hosts and anchors and correspondents, they don't want to be the center of the story. They do not want to be the subject. Um, you know, I'm sure if you were to speak to April Ryan, she would say the same. Um, she did. I did speak to her. Okay. <laughs> she did say that. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 pretty tough right now for them. Um, you know, they're they're doing the best they can, but they are going. You know, as I said before, they're going against you know a man, a president who wants to be part of the action. He wants to be part of the conversation and. You know, he's instructed his White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, to be sort of combative, um, you know, and whether these correspondents want to be part of the story or not. And my guess is that they don't want to be, you know, the center of the story. um, That's what's happening right now. And it's very interesting. Um, It's a very unique time to be covering politics and to be covering this administration uh, in 2017. So our cover star is Van Jones, commentator on CNN. Uh, tell us why we picked him to kind of be the face of this issue and, uh, and and what you learned about him. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, he is one of the most um, outspoken commentators on cable news today. Um, he is unapologetically progressive. Um, he's been emotional on the air. Um, I don't know how many folks 
listening, um, you know, we're watching CNN's election night coverage. But uh, after it was announced that Trump uh, had become the president-elect, um, Van Jones went on the air and said that this is a white lash, that this is, you know, not just middle America, but, you know, a lot of white people around the country, um, their response to an African-American president. Um, so, you know, those comments back then got a lot of traction. Um, and then even more recently, when uh, President Trump gave his first jo joint address to Congress, um, you know, he was uh, a very passionate defender of a couple of Trump's um, actions during the address, uh, specifically when he um, mentioned um, the wife of a fallen Navy SEAL who was in the audience. Um, she stood up and she got a great uh, standing ovation. Um, and uh, Van Jones said about that, um, you know, that's one moment when Trump became president, period. Um, and that, you know, that gained a lot of traction and that got a lot of criticism from people on the left. And I think it stunned a lot of, of his CNN colleagues um, that he would, you know, sort of express some support for Trump, you know, however small it may have been. Um, so, you know, I think Jones is a firebrand on both sides and now what he's doing right now um, with his new show, uh, The Messy Truth, and that he's, you know, traveling around the country, talking to people around America, wanting to understand either why, A, they didn't vote or why they supported Trump, um, you know, and Van is someone who, again, is really far on the left, so I think he doesn't really, he, or at first he didn't really understand the Trump phenomenon, but I think now, um, you know, now that he's sp spoken to a lot of folks from around the country w with different backgrounds, um, you know, he's better able to understand the, uh, the phenomenon itself, and um, I think it makes for really compelling television. So I think Van, you know, and he'll he'll tell you himself, he's gone through sort of a transformation um, in the past couple of years. Um, and I, I just think, you know, overall, he's a really compelling voice. Um, and yeah, he was, he was great to talk to. He, he certainly is, you know, it was polarizing. I remember as soon as we shared our cover uh, this week, uh, you know, we automatically, you, you had responses from kind of both sides of the political divide, uh, basi yeah. basically both decrying him, like one, half saying, oh, that he's a liberal shill, he's the worst of the lamestream media, whatever, and then the other half saying, oh, he's a traitor to the, you know, to the progressive cause or to the resistance. Traitor to the cause, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he, he feels like he is both kind of trying to represent both sides fairly, but at the same time being demonized by both sides. This is a hard maybe the hardest uh, time ever in which to try to see things from other people's point of view, which, of course, is what we as journalists are supposed to do. Uh, and mm -hmm. I feel like it, it carries a, a steep price if you try to just understand someone else's perspective or, God forbid, you know, actually praise the people that you are 99% of the time critical of. It is. You know, I mean, look, it's very admirable, you know, this project that he's taken on, um, you know, and I, I, you know, I asked him a lot of questions about his travels and a lot of work. And he said, you know, in terms of a lot of the white folks and people living in different parts of America, you know, they're a very proud people, but they're scared right now. And that some of the things that they celebrate, um, you know, family first and neighborliness, they really aren't celebrated in the, you know, in the pop culture. And, you know, while they might not dislike transgender people or immigrants, it's just it's not their reality. And they feel as though they're sort of being overlooked and, you know, ignored, not, you know, partially by the mainstream media, but also by government. And they, you know, want a bold voice to sort of speak up for them. And that's what they see in Trump to an extent. So, 
um, you know, Van is very attuned to that now. Um, you know, and he was, he was great. He was very thoughtful in his responses when I spoke with him. Um, very emotional and honest. And uh, yeah, he was a great person to speak with. Now, Sammy, you wrote several of the blurbs for this issue. Uh, you did not write about Lauren Duca from uh, Teen Vogue, but I did want to ask you about her. Um, the, you know, it feels like she has become, it, when we talk about these these political pundits, commentators who almost felt like they came out of nowhere during the election cycle, she's the one I always think of. You know, it seemed like she really exploded onto the scene with her, her piece mm-hmm. uh, called Donald Trump is Gaslighting America, which kind of suddenly just was everywhere and people were saying what teen vogue you know <laughs> it's like it really kind of established them as as a bit of a thought leader um tell me a little bit about her from from your perspective as someone who is who is younger and who is kind of watching she seems to be galvanizing a certain audience that has always felt a bit underrepresented by the media of course yeah there's there's a tweet that i saw a few weeks ago that was saying, you know, there's still one writer at Teen Vogue who only knows a lot about nail art and is now very concerned for their position because <laughs> it seems like it, in order to survive at a lot of media companies or maybe younger facing female companies that, you know, you got to be woke as hell and like really on top of your game and um, very aware of, of every kind of politic that's going on right now. Um, and all that to say, that's impossible. There's only, you know, 20 million things happening in the world. Um, and there's also 20 million things happening in your life as a teenage girl or a teenager who reads Teen Vogue. When I was in high school, I was, you know, co-president of our like eco society. We're, we're allowed to care about algebra and boys and drama club and the environment. So I think it was kind of a wake up call for people who forgot that, you know, teenagers are either you know, they voted for the first time or they're about to vote for the first time and they matter and they have very complex lives, um, sometimes of their own design. Sometimes they maybe bring on, you know, too much drama into their own life. But a lot of them have to be very concerned and very aware. Maybe they are families of immigrants or, you know, maybe they live in a in a small town and this is one of their only, you know, sources of, of entertainment and news. So I think she, she kind of does overall represent and not to, to put the weight of the world on her shoulders. She doesn't need to, to represent every young woman in, you know, in America. America right now but there's there's definitely an ongoing conversation of people realizing how um, it doesn't matter who you are that you can care about I believe her new column at Teen Vogue is is thigh highs in politics or something like that like you're allowed to care about fashion just as much as you're allowed to care about politics so while it, it seemingly did come out of nowhere and that was published back in December even and we're still talking about it, um, it it's certainly you know not the only time that that Teen Vogue has I think it's a, it's a good representation of the movement that they kind of um, are are leading the charge on that they we can represent all kinds of voices and all kinds of opinions and it, it might come from surprising sources <laughs> like like teenagers but you know what if we're gonna if we're gonna have somebody lead the revolution it might as well be teen girls. Tim, uh, anyone jump out at you as uh, in terms of personalities you've really started to notice more or follow more closely in the last year? Well, you know, I don't watch cable news. Uh, I don't really have, I don't have cable, first of all. And uh, so I, I find most of these people on Twitter, honestly. And so guys like Farenthold and, and Maggie Haberman 
you know, uh, definitely follow them on Twitter. And, you know, with Trump being such a big tweeter, there's so, so much going back and forth on Twitter nowadays in terms of political coverage. And I find, I find it fascinating how the reporters use Twitter as a tool to, you know, market their own stories and, and uh, their own personalities there as well. So uh, the, the social game is, seems to me, uh, at least from my vantage point, um, pretty fascinating too. I actually pity guys like you, AJ, who, you know, are watching this stuff in real time because I feel like I, probably like Tim, you know, I'm able to just kind of get all the gleanings from Twitter and social media of, of doing the hard work for me of, I don't want to sit and watch an hour of a press conference or of a really, you know, annoyingly obtuse Senate hearing, but I love seeing the the quotes that come out of it. And, and I think in the end, you just have to kind of trust that the people you're following are going to you know, present the information fairly. And, and, and I do try to avoid people who cherry pick the most damning kind of passing comments. Uh, but, uh, but I feel like these, these personalities that we've included in the list, to, to me, represent some of the best of, of how Twitter and, and other social outlets have really kind of redefined the way news is, is reported and presented. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I spend my entire day watching cable news and you know it's 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 draining so you know as soon as i get home i go to the gym for an hour or two sort of just get it all out of my system um you know because watching the news and being involved in the media and this cycle this 24 7 you know cycle of conflict and drama it can get draining um but you know i think the journalists who are out there at the post and at the times and at a lot of these networks um you know this is such a unique administration and it's an odd time um, in politics and I think people are still trying to figure out how how to how do you know how do they cover Trump how do they cover what's happening um, and everyone's still trying to figure out how to properly do that um, and I think you know I mean gosh I'm tired tr trying to cover them covering it I can only imagine how tired they are um, but you know I, I think everyone's doing the best that they can and um, you know yeah it's a very strange time but an exciting time in um in the media industry i you know one thing i've noticed recently i did change i i, I don't have cable like tim i'm still a cord cutter and and very rarely mm -hmm. watch anything in real time uh, but i did uh subscribe to the print edition of the new york times on sundays uh and that's actually it's I've really enjoyed it a lot more than I expected, and it's made me realize that we fall into these what some people call narratives or these kind of basically ruts in the road of of news. You know that there are it seems like at any given time there's three or four major storylines going on, and cable news obviously has to uh, kind of pick those and stick them because you can't just sit there reporting you know, th one minute on every major news story happening in the world because your audiences are going to kind of lose interest. The Times. Right. Uh, you know the the what they've dedicated their space and re th this past weekend they had an incredible and just oh just heart shattering uh, special report on Niger and and what's happening uh, in a lot of these famine plagued uh, countries and and you know really parsing out the differences in these you know it's easy to just think oh there's a bunch of countries over there that are that are having trouble. Uh, but, you know, the deep dive that they do uh, on some of these stories, it makes you just kind of realize there's so much news happening out there uh, right. that, that, that cable news just isn't obsessed with. And therefore, Donald Trump's not obsessed with it. And you, you, you start to wonder, you know, which is the tail and which is the dog? Like, is it, mm. you know, is it the viewers kind of this? This is as we all know, people within this news industry that say, well, hey, you know, we kind of have to present the news that that audiences want to follow. Uh, and we can't cover everything. 
Um, but on the other hand, we as journalists do have some responsibility to kind of take time to show people there's other stuff happening and that, you know, this your little echo chamber bubble that that everyone's in isn't isn't the entire world. You know, I mean, look, I a, a lot of these journalists and, you know, TV newsers who I speak with, I think they would love to cover a lot of these other stories, you know, um, in terms of what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Africa. I think they're hoping that after the first 100 days, this calms down a bit. I'm not sure if it will, um, but I know, you know, a lot of them do want to cover stories outside of politics. Um, I think you do see a little, uh, you know, more non-political stories if you watch uh, the evening news or, you know, you read other news outlets. But, you know, if you're t tuning into the trio of cable channels, um, you know, it's still all politics all the time. Um, but, you know, hopefully that will change. You know, my, my brother-in-law is a writer for Reuters, and he was sort of mm -hmm. leading their uh, political coverage during the election. And, you know... They, they sort of all promised him, like, well, we're going to move on, move you on to a different beat after the election's over. And it'll, you know, I know this is really stressful. Like the whole election season, he was working like crazy and it was obviously very stressful. And then kind of the carrot at the end of the, at the end of the road for him was that um, he would get a different beat after, you know, after the, the, the politics was over. And, uh, and so they put him on the environment. Uh, he's got, he has to write about the environment now and it's all politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. every, you know, every yeah. every story about you know public policy at all, suddenly you're dealing with with the Trump you know juggernaut. So I mean, it's just some, for some of these reporters, uh, it's endless, and it, and it is admirable what they're what they're what they're going through. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and look, I mean, if Hillary had won, um, I'm sure we could be talking about other stories. You know, it wouldn't be politics 24/7, but this administration is just doing such. You know, I don't want to say bizarre. Well, okay, yeah, sure, I'll I'll say bizarre. I mean, they're they're so unpredictable and so different, and they're taking such odd actions that you know you sort of can't look away, and you have to cover it. I think if you know Clinton had won the election, she would be you know it would be a far tighter ship, um, and that hasn't happened. So I think there's just a lot to cover right now, and you know everyone's still focused on that. But again, you know, I'm hoping after these first 100 days, and I know a lot of the journalists who I speak with. Um, you know, are hoping that they could move on to other stories. But just with the way this administration is acting and th the things that they're doing, I, you know, politics is going to be the thing, you know, the main theme in the news for the foreseeable future. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have to adjust to it. <laughs> uh, way to end the podcast on a down note. I know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, shoot. I know. Well, next, <laughs> next time we'll, 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 be sure to talk more about hamburgers and cleavage. And <laughs> um, well, th thank you. Uh, th thank you so much, AJ and Sammy, both of you, for coming to talk about this uh, special issue. I encourage everybody to look up our 15 political power players uh, and browse the list yourself and let us know on Twitter uh, what you thought of those and if there's anyone else. We're, we're going to be doing a Twitter chat uh, this Wednesday. Uh, we do one every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about basically kind of who are the political influencers, pundits, uh, personalities that you follow these days. Uh, and so it should be fascinating to see what uh, everyone we have hundreds of participants in those each week and i can't wait to see who people mention beyond our, our list here um and uh i i 
do have uh, uh, one sad announcement uh, for us. Uh, Kevin Eck, our editor, who has been uh, central to this podcast uh, since its inception uh, and has been a massive uh, resource for us and, and huge tireless helper, is going to be leaving Adweek, moving uh, back home to California and taking a position out there. Uh, so, uh, Kevin, uh, I know you're listening to this because you have to edit the podcast together uh, <laughs> and are, are sitting in the room right now. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, we're glad we'll have you for one more podcast. But uh, big thanks from all of us. You have been a, a tremendous help and we will miss you greatly. Uh, so thank you for all of your hours spent making this podcast a success. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was uh, produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck, as previously mentioned. Uh, please take a moment, as you, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from. We would appreciate it because it helps uh, new audiences find our podcast. And don't forget, you can hit us at podcast at adweek.com uh, by email. It's podcast at adweek.com. We've got some fun stuff coming up soon. Uh, next week is our uh, Atlanta uh, digital special issue. It's a city spotlight where we look at Atlanta as a thriving brand, marketing, cultural scene. I've personally spent a lot of time out there. I will be spending a lot more time out there next week. So can't wait to uh, talk about those stories. And uh, so we will talk to you all next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.